This Week at Hope Point. All references to white in Revelation are purity. His purity clothing you, covering all of your impurity. And when you love that, you think about it and say, you know what, I don't want to put anything dirty over this pure clothing Jesus has given me that means so much to me. Because he, he bought my clothing with his blood. According to various studies, half the money we pay for an item is connected to the expenses related to packaging and marketing. Some companies are actually more concerned with what is on the outside versus what is on the inside. This is why Christ spoke as strongly as he did in Revelation 3. The church was experiencing a great internal decline, yet outwardly it appeared healthy in the eyes of the community. To the people who were content to live with a false reputation, Jesus said it is time to wake up and return to him and receive the life of the Holy Spirit that is absent from their church. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 3. Every time that Lisa and I travel to one of our favorite coastal cities, which is Wilmington, North Carolina, we quickly make our way downtown to the Cape Fear River for all the sights and the sounds and the restaurants. And But I've been vacationing at uh, Wrightsville Beach since I was a kid. And the reason I go down there is I love to see the battleship North Carolina. And even though I'm 61, it still amazes me like when I was nine. And um, I'm just so impressed with this, this great World War II giant. It, um, it's 17 inch thick armor, the 16 inch turrets that could fire a, the weight of a small car 20 miles through the air. And what I really love about it is the history of, of the ship. It, it's the most highly decorated battleship uh, of World War II. It took place, it took part in every major offensive in the Pacific Theater in the Second World War. But every time I look at it, I am reminded that even though it had a great past and a great history, now it's just a museum. There are no crewmen on it. It's just tourists. The guns don't fire, the engines don't run. The ship looks impressive, but it is utterly powerless. And I think this is how Jesus Christ felt in Revelation chapter 3 when he addressed the church of Sardis, um, a church that had a great past but had no present love for Christ at all. To review again, Revelation 3.1, we're talking... Jesus addressed to five churches. This is church number five. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. If you're new to Hope Point today, we've been for the past five weeks looking at the churches of Revelation. John, the writer of the book, wrote, or actually Jesus Christ through John, wrote to seven churches in seven cities. Today, we're at city number five, right there in the middle of Turkey, almost in the middle of the map, Western Asia. You can see Istanbul at the top, just for a point of, a point of reference. And so, as we've looked at these churches, this is the church so far that gets the most severe rebuke. Because the problem with the church is the only thing it cared about is what other people thought. Willing to forsake reality in order to keep up 
its reputation. Jesus alludes to this in verse one. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you were actually dead. Once again, no matter how many people you fool and you convince and you persuade, our Lord Jesus Christ knows the truth, which is a reminder of something you've heard many times in your life. Often what gets an A on earth gets an F in, in heaven. When you read this letter to this church, you're going to see that it doesn't really have any of the, uh, the common uh, concerns where Jesus normally is trying to comfort a church that's heavily persecuted. There is no persecution going on at this church because this church had learned to say whatever culture told it to say for the church to be accepted in the city. Feed the poor, fine. Limit your comments about God and we will accept you. New Testament scholar George Carriage says, Sardis was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. They were no challenge to culture and no threat to Satan. And they couldn't even see their own spiritual condition because the only thing they could see was whether or not they had a bunch of likes. It's an interesting thing. They live for flattery. They live for compliments from their culture. It's almost like somebody who is on social media, which I love, but somebody on social media, and they think about everything they post of, will it generate a lot of likes instead of a challenge at times to their culture to think about the Lord? So Christians, we don't love likes. You know what Christians love? A true follower of Christ loves the name of Jesus more than anything else in the world. Sardis had, the church at Sardis had fallen out of love with the name of Jesus. And as it drifted from biblical teaching, it had drifted farther and farther away from Christ himself to the place that Jesus said the church was, was dead. And this is how he knew the church was actually dead, lifeless. How he starts the letter. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Once again, you can't read Revelation without coming across some interesting language. We found out before, a few weeks ago, the seven stars, he tells us, are representatives of the seven churches. So we knew he was going to write to seven churches, but he's not talked at all about holding the seven spirits of God. Well, again, you just don't need to read too much into that. The number seven used throughout history or literature, the number seven has often been accepted as a number of perfection, a number of fullness, a number of completion. So here Jesus Christ is simply saying, I have come to give you all of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, when Jesus came to um, earth, there was a prophecy written about him in Isaiah 61 that whoever the Messiah was that came from heaven would have this, the, such a saturation of the Holy Spirit would accomplish seven mighty things. Well, Jesus quoted that verse in Luke chapter 4 on the right side of your screen. He didn't quote all seven. You can read Isaiah um, 61 if you want to see that. But he just quoted a few. What the Holy Spirit would allow him to do as the Messiah and Savior. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is on me to preach to the poor, to free the prisoners, to give sight to the blind, and to lift up the oppressed. And so when Jesus says, 
He holds the seven spirits of God. He simply says, I hold the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you all of the Holy Spirit to fill all of your body. But the, the church of Sardis had none of the Holy Spirit. They, like, they did this without the Spirit of God. They sang, they taught, they gave, they served, and the life of God was not in, in the church. They were just a machine. They were a museum. They weren't a movement anymore. The reason that Jesus Christ died on the cross is not just to remove guilt from your body, but to send his spirit, his life into your body. Christianity is a twofold thing. Removal of the guilt, inclusion of the Holy, Holy Spirit. So now you have to ask, wow, you know, was it too late for a church that, you know, had said no to Jesus in exchange for the admiration of, of their culture? Was it too late? Never with the Lord. Look what he says. It's strong, but it's still tender. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember what you've received and what you've heard. Hold fast and, and, and repent. So this is basically Jesus saying to the church, he's asking them a question. Do you want to be a decaying religious monument or a dynamic spiritual movement? If so, you have a few minutes to make that decision. So anybody that's in this room today, Jesus is saying, nobody knows how much time you have left. So, but here, if you can read these words, as this church read these words, if you can read them, if you're here today, he's brought you here to say, today is the day, there's time. But Urgency. Urgency is all over that passage. This church was like a fire out in the woods, a campfire, surrounded by rocks and all the, everything's been burned except at the bottom of the fire you can see one little red ember. And you have just a few seconds to gather some straw and get that fire going again, or you're going to have a cold, long, dark night. Just a few seconds to get the fire going. So Jesus is saying, this is urgent. Act on what you're hearing today. When the Bible says, remember what, you have re what you've received in verse 3, it's like telling you, there's not a whole lot of things in life you've got to remember. Like, Forget to eat, fine. Forget to exercise, fine. Forget to check your email, fine. But never one day of your life forget that Jesus shed his blood so you could have a relationship with the king of the universe. Never forget that, not one day. Because when your mind forgets the cross, your body will remember sin. So Jesus said, remember all of this. It's a treasure. Remember it. Hold on to it. Don't lay it down so you can pick up the agenda of culture. Remember, remember the hell that you've been saved from. Remember the heaven that you are sailing to. Remember the blood on the key 
that unlocked the prison of shame and the doors opened so you could walk out. Like remember every day those doors are open and Christ is waiting for you. Remember him and remember walk out of that, that sin and that shame. When Jesus told the church to wake up, it's a very serious word, intense word, it's a military word. It's a word that you would use to, in any time you say, wow, this is urgent situation, dangerous or whatever. Um, it's, you could see the verses I used in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's, a lion is coming. You say, that's urgent. Or a thief is trying to break into my house. You would adjust your life at that point. You, this is urgency. It's what he wants the church to feel. Wake up because a thief is about to come and on the borders of your life. Now, if anybody could understand this sense of urgency and the need to wake up and be ready because of battle, it would be the city of Sardis. Because in 542 BC, the city, 549 BC, the city was utterly embarrassed. Um... The king of the region, Croesus, had picked a fight against an away king, Cyrus, who reigned over Persia. Cyrus says, that's fine. I've always wanted to move westward. So he came into this region of this part of Turkey and surrounded this city for 14 days, laid siege to the city. But the city, the, the, the military personnel was not alarmed. Because, you see, I read the word fortress, high on a hill, 1,500 feet high, cliffs on every side, three sides of this rock. And all of the military personnel said, no way can Cyrus' troops get to us. So they were not alarmed. The world's dominating king and army are around your city and you're not alarmed. Because we're high on a hill and safe. Well... Cyrus paid one of his special ops guys. He offered it to all of them. Whoever finds a way up those cliffs, get extra salary this year. They found a way up. Once Cyrus found out about that, he created this distraction miles away at another part of the region. The military went there. They didn't have to worry at all about this outpost. And when the Persian army got to the top of that, there was nobody there. There was not one soldier guarding the post because they said there's no reason to. There is no, no alarm. Um, I hope you are alarmed at um, what's going on in our world today. I hope you're not like the soldiers on top of the hillside and you feel safe just because today you're on nice cushioned seats and you're in a nice car on the way home with a house, you can lock your doors. I'll tell you this, if you don't feel in our day and age a spiritual urgency, when you look at the anti-family, anti-church, anti-freedom, anti-unity, anti-law sentiment that is spewed out on this culture, you have fallen asleep and you're unconscious. Anybody that's not living with a sense of urgency right now is asleep. But Sardis looked at their culture and they felt no alarm. Revelation 3.2 says, wake up. 
Right now in Finland, we're going to find out what's going to happen to this woman this week. Her name is Pavi Rasenain. Uh, she is uh, 61 uh, years old. She's my age. She's a mother of five. And she has served as Finland's interior minister from 2011 to 2015. She's been arrested. The prosecutor general charged her with the crime of hate because she posted in a tweet, Romans 1, 24 through 27, that marriage is between a man and a woman and anything that is contrary to that is contrary to God. Listen, it's fine if the citizens of Finland don't like her statement. It's fine if the prosecutor general hates the Bible. But what is outright evil is when the state, the government, uses its power to tell its citizens what they cannot believe. And we're going to see as we make our way through the book of Revelation in chapters 12 through 14 that there will come a time as history unfolds that there will be forced belief by the government. It's occurring in Finland now and other countries in Europe. It happened in Canada this week with the truckers. Now listen, it never means that we quit preaching the gospel. It means actually... Because we do have that freedom now, today, preach as we can. And when we can't, we still preach and accept the consequences. But if it's within your power to either preach or vote, because we're not talking about an American freedom here. I'm sorry this happened to her, but I'm personally glad that it happened to somebody in Finland so nobody could accuse me on this stage of exalting America above the kingdom of God. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying this is not an American right. This is a human right to express your mind. And the government of Finland is taking it away. You should feel a spiritual urgency when any government anywhere will not allow the conscience of the nation to be challenged by a citizen who uses their right of self-expression to quote the Bible. This is what Bonhoeffer tried to tell Germany. You don't want to shut down the churches, Hitler. Because you don't, listen, you, you know what church is, preaching is? All we're doing is challenging the conscience of the nation. You don't want to ever destroy your conscience. It's suicide for a nation to do that. The example I shared with you from Finland is, is in Europe. It will be a, at some point on the shores of the United States because there are people in very powerful positions at this very moment who are working to make freedom of expression, the use of the Bible, limited in expression. Do you know what the church of Sardis would have done when faced with such a decision? Because here's the decision. To speak and be persecuted or to be silent and be praised. I mean, you face it all the time, right? Speak and be persecuted, be silent and be praised. The church of Sardis chose to be Praise. They chose silence. And Jesus told them, wake up. Because your deeds 
are unfinished. It's not time to finish preaching and teaching and sharing Christ as long as history is still here. That's what Sardis would have done. You know what this woman did? I love her, her response to the government when they arrested her. She said, I will not back down from my views. I will not be intimidated into hiding my faith. The more Christians keep silent on controversial themes, the narrower the space for freedom of speech gets. It is right to feel urgency when a human right around the world is being taken away by evil government. So what happens to a church that doesn't wake up? Well, we're told. Revelation 3.3, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So we don't know exactly when Jesus came and how he came and how the church was no more in Sardis, but it's no more in Sardis. And he said, I'm coming like a thief because he wanted them to understand there's sort of a rule that thieves have. They don't come to your door in the afternoon and leave a note, I'm coming tonight. So that's why you're always ready and lock the door. And that's why Jesus said, you should be about my return like this. You must also be ready because this is to all of us because the Son of Man, Luke 12, 40, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And this is talking about the second coming. This is the greatest, ver this is the greatest accountability partner I have. I want to live my life that every moment of my life, I would say this is a good time for Jesus to come back. Now. Even before I finish this sentence. Like, Lord, I'm proud of what I was saying when you came back. I'm proud of what I was doing when I came back. After the first service, Lisa texted me, which is always fearful. <laughs> She's at home with her, taking care of her parents. And, and she was sitting next to her, just watching the service, the nine o'clock service with her, her mother. Her mother's taught uh, Sunday school for like 61 years. Has some health problems now, can't teach, but so faithful as a Bible teacher. But her, she taught with a, a co-teacher named Ranny Moorhead. Ranny was my youth group guy. I didn't have a, a Dan Bogness. I just had the, the Roy Renards and I just, had the, I just had the adults. Ranny was my, he was, he was like a, he was a potato chip salesman. And that's what he did for a living, but lived at the church like volunteers do for youth. I owe him everything. I'm here on the stage tonight. I mean, today because of Ranny Moorhead. This is what Ranny used to say. At least a text me said, don't forget Randy's comment that he used to tell us as youth. He said, he said, I don't want to be hanging out in the rub it in lounge when Jesus comes. The rub it in lounge was a horrible place on Gordon Highway in Augusta. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be in the rub it in lounge when Jesus comes back. The sad thing about the church of Sardis is they weren't even thinking about the return of Christ anymore. I mean, they, not, they were not like hungry. Aren't you hungry? Don't you want this service interrupted with his return? I will tell you right now, I hope the band does not get to sing song number four. 
And I know there are people here today say, now, 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 Jesus, glorious Savior, return. Now. And he loves for you to talk like that. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. There were some people living with that kind of sentiment. Amazing. In all these churches, there are survivors. Yet, I, yet you have a few. Amazing. Revelation 3, 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Like, what does it mean to live a worthy life? It means to be appreciative that Jesus Christ has dressed you in his purity. That's what white is all the time in Revelation. I mean, we see it all the time. You got a white stone a couple weeks ago. Jesus in Revelation 1 on his throne with white hair. Then we got here white clothing. All references to white in Revelation are purity. His purity clothing you, covering all of your impurity. And when you love that, you think about it and say, you know what? I don't want to put anything dirty over this pure clothing Jesus has given me. It means so much to me. Because he, he bought my clothing with his blood. Imagine this. A man is going on a business trip. And um, his wife buys him a beautiful new white shirt. He gets in his car a couple hours down the road, hears a noise that lets him know he's got a flat tire. He gets out to change it, new car, never seen how this tire, I finds out that the, one of those cars where the tire is mounted underneath the car, white shirt. So he gets out a tarp, climbs underneath the car, doing everything he can to keep this white shirt that his wife bought pretty. <laughs> Somehow gets his tire off, new one on, stays clean. He didn't want to have the clean shirt just because of his business meeting. But when he got home that night, he and his wife were going out to eat. And he, he wanted his shirt pure for her because she bought it. This is how these people live, these few in Sardis. Jesus has purchased Purity for me to wear, covering up all of my sin. He purchased me a new shirt, a new robe, new, new clothing. You know, I um, I've spent since 1996. I think I've made 12 trips to India, and I, the, of all the things I marvel at when we're in the villages and the slums sharing the gospel, encouraging pastors and church members. I just marvel of how beautifully dressed are the women who live in the slums, in the villages, and do all of their work every day in all of this beautiful, colorful um, clothing, and they never get dirty. They live in dirty places, but they've been given beautiful dresses and they keep them clean. This is the heartbeat. This is the mentality of a disciple of Christ. To value what Jesus has covered you with. And the covering of God is all over. From the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3. They were ashamed of what they had done. And God killed an animal and clothed them with the skin of that animal. 
Then in Zechariah chapter 3, God replaced the dirty clothes of a priest named Joshua, gave him new clothing. And then our favorite of all stories, Luke 15, a young man rebelled against his father, took the father's money, went to a far land of wildness and spent it all. And then laid down where the pigs sleep and eat. He had nowhere to go but to eat their food. He was filthy. He came home. The first thing that his father did is told everybody, get my son a new robe. God wants to clothe you and cover your sin more than you want to be covered. He loves covering us with holiness and purity. And Jesus died. Jesus shed his blood for our new robes. My favorite clothing verse and I, in the Bible is Isaiah 61. I delight greatly in the Lord. Verse 10. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his, his righteousness. And the reason why we love this verse is just a few chapters earlier. Isaiah said, my good works that I tried to cover over my guilt with, my good works are like filthy rags that I tried to piece together. Now I've got a clothing, a robe from God. We all need a robe that's been provided by Christ. How about all the people that are in heaven today? Wow. And we're going to see them over and over again in the book of Revelation, but you can't celebrate their joy too much. Here they are before the throne of God. Revelation 7 these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. You know what that, I mean, that's the, boy, that, the painful time on earth. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I can tell you, if you came to church today, I know one thing that God wants you to tell you is he has a white robe for you. He wants to cover you and cleanse you and everything that you've ever done in life he wants to clothe it with the righteousness of Christ. Just make an exchange. Your sin for the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus. Just let him clothe you. I don't have any better news than that ever to tell you. He can clothe everything you've ever done with Jesus' righteousness. I remember a few years ago, I was counseling a woman who doesn't live in this city. Um... My wife and I had a, a friendship with her, a pastime in our life. But she needed counseling, and I'd not counseled many people in life that were in that much despair. But she had had an affair and for many years had kept it from her husband and couldn't live with it anymore. And... Um, So we encouraged her, how much God loved her, trust the future to God. And she went home and she told him, you know what he did? He acted like Jesus and said, I forgive you and held her like Jesus would. But she could not let the forgiveness of Jesus really comfort her. Punish, punish, punish. She felt like she, like some of you in here, like you are a different kind of Christian than the other. Like I'm different, I'm bad. I'm, I'm, I have more badness in me than others. I, 
She felt second class until she read this verse one day. I couldn't help her anymore. It's like, she read this verse that Jesus had washed her in his blood. So she texted me one Easter morning as she was going to church. She said, Richard, I just want to let you know I'm headed to church and I'm wearing a white dress today because I'm pure. I'm as pure as Christ. He has cleansed me. So that's what Jesus says. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. That's the first promise. He has a new robe for you to cover your past. We'll close quickly with the second and third promises to these few people. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So when you read this verse, you basically say there's three things that have to happen for you to go to heaven. You have to be wearing the righteousness of Jesus. Your name has to be written in his book. And he has to speak your name to God the Father for you to go to heaven. The book of life is, um, which is in the middle, there you can see in the middle of verse five. The book of life is mentioned six times in the book of Revelation, so it's huge. We're going to encounter it later, so I feel like I might as well just deal with it now. Toward the end of the book, having your name in the book of life results in two massive things. Number one, to avoid penalty. Revelation 20, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And by the way, right before this, that was called the great white throne, God's holy throne. They were standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened. So there's books and another book. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged not from the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. God had recorded everything they'd ever done from the moment they were born in those books and his judgment was based on everything they'd ever thought, said, and done. And none of them made it. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life. Anyone whose name. So the first reason you should be concerned and say, I think I need to be interested in the book of life it is what causes you to be freed from hell. But Christianity is not just about a bunch of negatives. It's the positives. It's not just freed from hell, but admitted into heaven. If your name's in the book of life. Revelation 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine for the glory of God gives it its light and the lamb, the lamb of God is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and there will be no night there. No pain, no sin. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here it's not just called the book of life, but it's the Lamb's book of life because Jesus was like a lamb, a lion who became like a lamb who was slaughtered 
shed his blood so he could write your name in the book of life. That's why it's the Lamb's book of life. So how do you know if your name's there? You can prove that your name is there. There's going to happen one thing. The book of Revelation said one thing's going to happen. It's going to let everybody know where their names are. It's found in Revelation chapter 13 when government and culture pressures you to drop your Christianity and become like government and culture tells you to become, which is what most people choose. And here, there is a reason they make that choice, and Revelation 13 tells us why. And it also tells us who will not do that. Revelation 13, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, which by this time in Revelation is another name for the Antichrist, a worker of Satan. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Everybody's going to cave whose names are not in the book of life. And they will worship both government and, and culture. So now that you can see how important it is to have your name in the book of life, let's go back in Revelation 3. Just read it again. The one who's victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. So the most important place you can have your name written on earth is, or in the world, is the book of life. And the most important person who will ever speak your name is Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people read this verse in Revelation chapter 3 and say, gosh, uh, Is it possible to have your name blotted out once Jesus has written it in? That's how most people read this verse. It's, it's trying to say just the opposite. You need to get in your mind what's happening here. These are a few tiny people in the church of Sardis. Culture has rejected them. The state has rejected them. The marketplace has rejected them. And even all the church in Sardis has rejected them. But just a few. And Jesus said to those few who've lost everything on earth, to you, I will never blot your name out of my book. Society may reject you. Listen, when Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, went up against the Catholic Church at that time, which was very corrupt, when they sentenced him and excommunicated him, there was a, an order, an edict that said, Martin Luther's name shall be removed from all church books in the land. So Jesus, and listen, whether the government removes your book or your friends remove your name, I will, you take a stand for me, I will never forget you. I will never blot your name out of my book. And I will confess your name to my Father in heaven. How sweet it will be when it is your time to meet the Lord. You're dressed in the righteousness of Christ You've not bowed to the state and to culture. 
you confess Christ's name on earth and you stand beside him and he looks and says, Father, this one is mine. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.